It's a pleasure to be back at Advent Hope. The first time I visited Advent Hope, there were uh, 12 people in a Sabbath school down in the health science um, some years ago when my daughter started medical school at Loma Linda. This morning we'd like to uh, look at a passage in Scripture. It's such a wonderful book, and I love to study its verses. Whether you're looking at the Old Testament or the New Testament, each verse is part of the story of Jesus and his efforts to save man. It's designed by God for our daily living, and it was especially designed to help medical missionaries and those training to become medical missionaries. Let us pray that God will teach us together as we watch the great medical missionary in his work. Father in heaven, it's with awe and wonder that we turn our ears to hear your voice. And Lord, we cannot without breath from you, sit here and listen, or without breath from you, may I even be able to speak. We're completely dependent on you for all things, for any way that we can understand your word. We must have your spirit to guide us, and you've promised to give it to us, and I pray that as we are here this morning, your spirit may fall and your word may come with fresh focus, fresh power, that we may leave different than we came because we have spent time at your feet. In Christ's name, amen. We'll look at the passage of Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 11. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. A year ago, I was asked to study this passage and uh, give it as a as a part of a week of prayer. And I'm embarrassed to tell you that I studied it day after day and didn't get much out of it. And I kept praying, Lord, what are you trying to tell me from this passage? And I still didn't get much out of it. Now, we can go to the milk of the word. We mentioned uh, that uh, Dr. McNulty in his class where I was today. Uh, mentioned milk and me, we can go to a commentator and get pre-digested um, milk. 
But God wants us to get meat. But I find sometimes it's difficult for me to understand what I, I read. Have you ever found that? And I knew the story was in the Bible for a special reason. God doesn't put stories in the Bible that weren't for me. Something it was to teach me, something about Jesus, something that I should be able to do, and then share that with others. I'm slowly learning not to give up on a passage quickly. Um, there's gold under the surface. And yet in my digging, I couldn't seem to discover what in this passage was especially important for me to understand. A key question I always like to ask when I'm studying a scripture is, if this was the only passage in the Bible, how would it teach me salvation? In, uh, in uh, magazines sometimes, they'll have a stereogram. And a stereogram is a three-dimensional picture on a one-dimension. Now, this is a stereogram up there. And if you get it close enough and you move in and you move out, suddenly a three-dimensional form emerges. But sometimes you have to work at it. Have you ever tried that and seen what I'm talking about? It takes time to bring the three-dimensional picture of Christ into focus. So let's begin to meditate on this passage together. According to the passage, when did this passage take place? The day after. The day after what? When we look in that verse before verse 11 in chapter 7, we find that Jesus had been in the city of Capernaum. On his arrival at that city, he was met by a delegation of Jewish leaders who urgently requested that he heal a centurion's son. Centurion's servant, excuse me. Could this centurion have been Cornelius, a centurion Peter visited a few years later? No. There's no reason to believe this was Cornelius. Cornelius was in Caesarea, which is 50 miles away from Capernaum. It was on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. But the two centurions may have known each other, and this could have been an influence in the other centurions. Of course, we don't know. But Jesus did heal this servant and spent the rest of the day in Capernaum with large crowds, listening to his instruction and observing his miracles. The next day, Jesus left Capernaum and went to the city of Nain. Let's follow him. Capernaum is on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus left Capernaum and walked to Nain. To better understand this journey, let's look at a map. Capernaum to Nain is a little over 22 miles and is a walk that is through some hills. One would pass through many little villages. And like tributaries in a river, the crowd probably kept swelling as they passed through each village. Incidentally, when Jesus arrived in Nain, he was just six miles southeast of his hometown of Nazareth. Now, how long would it take to walk 22 miles to Capernaum? A little over 22 miles. That's almost the distance of a marathon. And if one walked briskly, not pausing for food, drink, or restroom breaks, it would take about five and a half hours, 15 miles 
an hour or so. Now, why would anyone walk that far, let alone a crowd, just to be with Jesus? For some, it was heaven to be with Jesus. Fatigue, hunger meant nothing if they could be with Him. For others, it was heaven to be with a crowd of excited people. Without the crowd, they wouldn't have followed Jesus. They weren't following Jesus. They were following the crowd, doing what the crowd did. Still, others were in the crowd from curiosity. They had heard about Jesus and were curious, wondering why so many people were following him. Some were there to make money, carrying and selling food and water. Some were ambitious and there uh, uh, to find a way to obtain greater fame and honor from all these people. There are a lot of reasons people follow G uh, Jesus. There are a lot of reasons people come to church. There are a lot of reasons people study their Bibles. Would you have been in the crowd following Jesus? Would I have been? Would, have, would you have been there for the, the crowd, the excitement, the novelty? Or would you have been there to be with Jesus? What winds your clock, as the expression says? Would you be willing to walk 22 miles to be with Jesus without a crowd? Those interested in Jesus followed him closely, trying to catch every word. Those more interested in the crowd were busy socializing, missed much of what Jesus may have said. However long it took, they ended up in Nain. This village is situated in the northwestern edge of the Little Hermon, where the ground falls into the plain of Ezralon or Jezreel, about five miles north of where Jezebel was killed. The entrance to the place where our Savior met the funeral most probably was up the steep ascent from the plain. On the west side of the village, the rock is full of sepulcher caves. The name Nain means pleasant, delightful, or beautiful. But it was anything but delightful or pleasant for the widow the day of our story. Now, did Jesus go to Nain by himself, according to the text? Who went with Jesus to Nain? His disciples. Did all of his disciples go to Nain? No. Which ones did? Many. Jesus had many other disciples than the 12 apostles. Lazarus was a disciple. Cleopas was a disciple. When the early church gathered and replaced Judas, they selected from two men, Matthias and Barsabbas, called Justice. And notice what Acts 1, 21, 22 says. Wherefore, of these men which accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto the same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. Who else went to the uh, name besides Jesus and his disciples? Large, large crowd. How many is a large crowd? Many people who make up a large crowd. Many different people, like the mixed multitude that followed Jesus out of Egypt. Would there be men in a large crowd following Jesus? Almost certainly. Would it be only men? No. You want to picture these things in your mind. Would there be some women? 
Almost certainly. Would there be old people in this crowd? Probably. Would there be young people? Almost certainly. Everyone in this crowd was strong and healthy. How do you know? Two reasons. Number one, if they were sick, what would have happened? Jesus would have healed them. And number two, if they weren't strong and healthy, would they be making a 22-plus mile one-way hike? Would there be people in the crowd who said after about a mile or two, why am I walking like this? Did anybody ask, where are we going? Why would anyone take a more than 44-mile round-trip walk to be with Jesus? Disciples follow Jesus. What would you be willing to do to be a disciple of Jesus? What did Jesus do as he walked? Luke 24, 32 says, And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn with us while he did what? Talked with us by the way, and while they opened to us the Scriptures. There they were, as they were walking this 22-plus miles there and 22-plus miles perhaps back. What was Jesus doing? Opening the Scriptures to them. What a wonderful seminar to go to. Walking with Jesus. Do you want to be like Jesus? Are you listening to Jesus through the day by thinking about Scripture, talking about it, and remembering it? Jesus wants your day to be walking with Him. Deuteronomy 6, 6, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt do what? Talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Do you want to know what it was like to be with Jesus for a day? That's the description. When he got up, what did he talk about? The scriptures. When he sat down to eat, what did he talk about? The scriptures. When he walked by the way, what did he talk about? The scriptures. I want to be like Jesus, don't you? Now, where was Jesus when he performed this miracle? According to the scripture. Near the what? Near the gate of the city. What else was happening near the gate of the city? There was a funeral procession. The pallbearers were taking the corpse to the, to the cemetery. What was particularly tragic about this funeral? There were two things. The boy was dying before his mother, and this boy was her only son. But what made it even more tragic than that this was her only son? She was a widow. That was her social security in the day. Her husband, gone. And now, her future care, gone, what would she do? What other support would she have? Only what others, sympathetic in the community, might from time to time give her. Who else was following the beer? A large crowd. Who would be in a crowd like this? Probably most of the community. 
This would have been a community tragedy. Young people were suddenly solemnized as they were face-to-face with the death of a friend and associate since uh, childhood. Older friends of this mother who sympathized with the pain of the widow they had grown up with. They had witnessed the joy of her courtship and then her, her wedding. The joy of the birth of this child and now they've seen the whole cycle of life. Childhood, adolescence, adulthood. Twice bereavement. What do you think these said to try and cheer her up and cheer themselves? What did the clergyman say at the funeral? What eulogy was given? Compared to Jesus, how little can we comfort others' sorrow? Let's compare the two large crowds our passage has revealed. There was a large crowd following Jesus. There was a large crowd following the dead man. Same Greek words. Jesus was leading a group into the city while the funeral train was doing what? Leaving the city. The crowd following Jesus was full of hope and happiness. The crowd following the beer was weeping and sad. Joy meets sorrow. Enthusiasm meets despair. Had they known the immediate future, would the crowd following the dead man have been sad? Knowing the future with Jesus makes such a difference. Knowing the future, how Jesus ends the story, changes everything. That's why prophecy is so important. It changes our view of the present because we know the future. For I know, God told Jeremiah, I know the thoughts that I have toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, when you look at a crowd, people look at crowds differently. The security, the secret service around the president, how do they look at the crowd? Suspicious, looking for enemies, listening for gunfire, muffled perhaps, watching for attackers. Politicians, how do they look at crowds? The, they don't see the individuals as much as what? How many are there? But when Jesus saw the crowd, how did he look at the crowd? It says, when the Lord, what? Saw her. He looked through the crowd, and what was he looking for? Mom. Mom. He didn't see the group. He looked for her. You know, this morning... Jesus isn't looking to see how many are here. He's looking to see if you're here. He wants not to talk to this group. He wants to talk to you. That's what he wants. He's interested not in fellowship merely with all. He's interested in fellowship with each. And he wants to fellowship And he looks to see if I'm here, in what condition my heart is, and can he speak the words that will bring hope and change to me. When Jesus saw her, how did he feel? Compassion. What is compassion? 
Um, when I first uh, looked at this, I started with the Merriam-Webster, but then I turned to the Funken-Wagnalls, and the reason I did, because uh, um, the Funken-Wagnalls uh, millions made it possible for Loma Linda University to exist. The, uh, I thought I should use that dictionary here. Uh, there at the start, it was Funkin' Ragnalls, one of the reasons uh, that God uh, used to bring the school of medical evangelists into being. But compassion is suffering with another, a sensation of sorrow excited by the distress or misfortunes of another. Jesus has compassion. When we suffer, he suffers. Notice the beautiful words of the gospel prophet Isaiah. In all their affliction, what? He was afflicted. You see, God has a nerve ending that doesn't end in my brain, but goes to his brain. He feels my pain. He feels it. That's compassion. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them, and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. What did Christ's compassion compel him to say to her? Do not weep. What does he do when we get to heaven? What's the very first thing he does? He knows about weeping because Jesus wept. But he takes out of his pocket a handkerchief that he's been saving for this occasion. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. The tear ducks will no longer be tear ducts. They'll just be moisturizing to keep our eyes healthy. And they'll be there so that we can have tears of joy. That's the only weeping we'll do in heaven. But notice, Christ didn't stop with saying, do not weep. What did he do next? He came. He came. The way he starts sorrow is to do what? Come. If Jesus didn't come, the sorrow would have continued. The solution to every problem, dear folk, is Jesus coming. No wonder Jesus coming back to this world is the favorite theme of the New Testament writers. No wonder Jesus coming is in the very name of our church. Seventh-day Adventists. No wonder it's mentioned 366 times on average, once every 25 verses. You have a verse for every day of the year except leap year. No wonder John the Revelator exclaimed at the close of the Bible, even so, come Lord Jesus. Do you need Jesus to come? Do you need him to come into your life to solve otherwise unsolvable problems? Do you want him to come into your home? Jesus came, and he came close. He came close. Notice what he did next. He touched the coffin. Was the coffin open or closed? It, was, it says he touched the open coffin. What did the pallbearers do when Jesus came up and touched the open coffin? 
They stopped. Perhaps the coffin had been closed and Jesus told them to open it. Christ was not going to do some magic trick with the substitution of an apparently dead body with a living person. No, the coffin is open. Jesus' actions were transparent. The dead man was visible, the cold, white flesh. And the crowd surrounding Jesus, those who had been following him, combined with those who were following the bier, and all could see that there was a lifeless corpse. There is an awkward, uncomfortable pause. What was going to happen? Was Jesus going to embarrass himself? Was he going to embarrass his disciples? What did Jesus call the man? The young man. Jesus addressed the young man as if he could hear and respond. He talked to him as if the young man was still alive. He talked to him and gave him a command. What was Jesus' one-word command? Arise, arise. Like the father telling his son, it's time to get up. Jesus told the young man, arise. Arise. 